0: welcome back to the cyclist magazine podcast today's guest is pete Stetner, pete former world tour rider transitioning across to the world of gravel and he's definitely not there on a victory lap because he's redefining gravel and ripping it up for the past couple of seasons and not really showing much signs of slowing down <laughs>
1: Welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast, Um, sitting opposite me, down some digital wires. Alexandra Bell, he would be impressed by what we've got now. (laughs) It is Anthony Walsh in Dublin, or just outside Dublin, on the end of his microphone, in his studio, fresh back from Iceland. Anthony, it's good to see you again, mate. How are you doing?
0: James, I'm back. I'm back. I made it to a round two cut for the prestigious Cyclist Magazine podcast. I'm, I'm feeling pretty pumped about that.
1: That's yeah, no, good. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I am feeling actually quite tired. Thanks for asking. You can you might be able <laughs> to tell. You might be, you made a little comment just before we came on that my eyes looked like they'd sunken back into my skull by a further millimeter, which is something that I would normally attribute to highly trained athletes, the sunken eye phenomenon. But also, yeah, it's the tired individuals like myself you look like you're off
0: a big uh, altitude training block and it's just you've got your sort of train high sleep low protocol slightly wrong you've got <laughs> just a bit too deep into the red and you know your blood levels hemocrits, all over the place and it's like oh we
1: might have to pull him out of the upcoming Vuelta yeah no I'm definitely I'm mate I'm not even getting on the Vuelta squad I'm probably a San Sebastian kind of like <laughs> <laughs> But it does it does beg a serious question. As I was shuffling around, bleary eyed this morning, uh, making my making my porridge, wondering at the numbers that I'd seen on the scales this morning. So I weigh myself a strange amount. I'm I wouldn't say I'm obsessed, but I'm I'm definitely on the wrong side of unhealthy when it comes to standing on scales in the morning. I'm putting on weight, and I'm tired, and I'm not riding as much, and that is not my favourite kind of combination of things. And from your coaching background, how do I kind of begin to undo that before it gets too much of a hold on me? Because I feel like it really has over the last couple of weeks.
0: It's a slide you see a lot of people making like in the coaching company, you know, the the larger coaching company, we work with all sorts of athletes, uh, but myself, uh, I typically end up gravitating towards working with people that are close enough to your situation, professionals, you know, bankers, Wall Street type dudes, CEOs that are super busy. And the slide is very gradual. It's rarely a hard turn where people say, okay, now I'm going to choose to neglect my health, work late, sleep poor, not focus on hydration. It's this idea that, okay, I'll chase this very temporary promotion. And when I get to that point, I have a finish line and then I'll start to get my health back. And you're playing this game of, rather than balance, you try and play this game of counterbalance where you're like, okay, I'll prioritize work, like a lot for the moment but then when I get to that point I'll go and reprioritize my health but the problem is those targets are normally moving goalposts when you get to that point with work there's another target there's another you know opportunity to go chasing and health just slowly erodes and I always try and get athletes to bring it back to the very basic stuff of like what are your values in life like is one of your values health is one of your values family is one of your values spirituality and if you're truly authentic to yourself and you believe that these values you know are important to you they need to be scheduled as non-negotiables into your calendar each week it's back to calendar again <laughs>
1: <laughs> but how okay i'm 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 down with the logic but it is it's managing to make those non-negotiables actually fundamental and just not prone to being moved around. You know, when you kind of go, yeah, no, I've got that, I've got that in my diary, my alarm clock's set to get up and go and do that ride, but this thing at work's just come up and I just have to do that first. How do I, that, it's, it's escaping that kind of mentality where I just feel beholden to a hierarchy of things as opposed to a kind of flat structure of multiple things I'd like to do on a rotating basis.
0: Yeah, and it's hard. I suppose you do have that hierarchy at the moment and that's largely the problem a lot of people see. That you need to prioritize stuff as not a hierarchical sense that if there is a hierarchical sense, maybe it's exercise goes at the very front of that. Like there's a, I seen a meme from a world tour cyclist, his name escapes me. And he was talking about, you know, he gets up and trains, eating, sleeping, talking to people, they're optional. It's like getting up and training. That's the thing that happens every day on the automatic but for most people, the thing that happens on the automatic, it's work, and then within work, if you have a you know a strange or maybe it is quite common situation where work ends up having this work creep, like a task just expands to be greater and greater and greater. It can be difficult to balance those values with that, and you need to draw hard lines in the sand. I had one point in my life where I'd come back, so my. Brief uh, background because we haven't talked about it on the podcast before. I went seven years in law school trying to be a lawyer. Practiced for about a week, sacked it in after a week and took a contract ride my bike in France, much to the delight of my parents. (laughs) They're like seven years in law school, lasted a week in law. Uh, came back to Ireland after you know chasing the pro career and not getting, not being very good, and saying, okay, I'm I'm not gonna make it in this game. Came back to Ireland and then experienced what you're experiencing right now, where I I take it on too much across multiple businesses to the point where I'd gone a lot further down the road. I'd put on a good chunk of weight, like I was racing at 68 kilograms. I think I was up at like mid 90s at one point. I was single. I was drinking too much. I was eating too much. I was going out for meals too much generally you'd call it the good life too much and (laughs) at the time I had coaching company a cafe and some other business interests and over the course of literally two three days I burnt everything to the ground because I had a real introspective look at my life and thought the path I'm leading now just doesn't lead me to any happiness so I shut everything down and much like you would if you're playing a computer game, I said, I've taken a strategic wrong move in this game. Like, I've gone the wrong direction. I need to reset. I need to kill myself in this computer game and start again. I'm going back to level one of Sonic here. I'm starting again. And for me, that's it's a pretty extreme. You know, we're going to have some listeners right in going. Yeah, I, I sacked off the wife, sacked off the job, <laughs> now what? Uh, it's an extreme way to do it. But for me, the direction I was going wasn't true to any of those values I talked about and I needed a hard reset on it. Uh, went away surfing to Bali, went traveling, came back with a blank piece of paper and I said, okay, now what? And that's where the idea of the podcast came along for me. It's like, okay, what would I do all day for free? And I was like, I started with a place of, I'd love to have inspiring chats with people I admired every day i was like okay well how can you make any money out of this how does this you know turn into a career and that's literally where i started and you know i try to help people navigate softer versions of that because it doesn't have to be a hard reset for everyone but maybe you'd say no to a promotion and prioritizing your health or prioritizing spending some extra time with your partner and it's it starts with slowly just being aware of the problem and then starting to put those strategies in place to deal with it
1: well, I mean, unless you know something I don't, I don't think I'm getting a promotion, although that would be nice. <laughs> I feel like I could I could definitely I could definitely square this away better if um If I was paid slightly more. But I shouldn't really say that on a podcast, should I? Uh no, I'm joking. And that is actually one of those things, isn't it, that I know a lot of mates have kind of got sucked into where you're just you are ground into the floor, but then someone goes, Hey, do you want an extra five to ten thousand pounds to do that over here? And they go, Yeah, go on then. And it's the same same, you know, same shit, different, different job. Basically, you just get paid a little bit more money. And the world does love to incentivize us with cash, and you kind of think, how could I work harder? And then you go, someone goes, I'm going to pay you more. And you're like, oh, I've magically managed to work a little bit harder now and squeeze more into the more into the day. So yeah, but luckily that's not going to happen for me. My, you know, and, I, and what I, my takeaway actually, Anthony, is the reverse, which is you're telling me I should basically just quit my job. So this will be the last podcast. I'm, I'm going to throw, <laughs> screw that. I'm going to sell. Um, do I even bother selling my bikes? I'll just burn my bikes. If you burn a carbon bike, it's gonna. Yeah, you could probably get that into, um, you could you could fit it into your pocket when it's melted down into just this little plastic. So I'll burn on my bike. Someone can come around and have the metal parts that won't burn. And I'll leave London and I'll go and do an ayahuasca retreat somewhere in... See,
0: London's your problem, isn't it? You need to earn so much to live in London.
1: Oh, is that what it is?
0: Yeah, London. I was over there for <laughs> I was over there for the podcast show a few months ago a bit more now, and it's shockingly expensive in London. Like Dublin's bad, but London is equally as bad. There's people out there just earning a fraction of what you're earning and they're living the good life in some remote part of the UK, <laughs> Listen to this podcast now, going, I have everything I want and I work four hours a week.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, this is this is very true. But hey hey. Anyway, I'll tell you what. We can we can move, we move along from this, you know, slightly dour chat. Other other aspects of my life are going fantastically well, thank you very much. I am tired, but hey, you know, London is expensive. But there are lots of things out there to enjoy. Riding your bike is one. Also going to a pub and paying £7.50 for a pint, that's another. But we can roll it along because one person who does seem to have their life way more dialed, having stepped away from the pro peloton and into the kind of the privateer world, is our guest today, uh, Peter Stetner and he's taking up gravel racing to an incredibly high level and he's really embraced it with both hands and he does seem to I think be loving it so I reckon let's roll into him and uh, see if he's got any good life advice for us both
0: yeah for sure Pete Stetner is somebody who's figured it out I think the impression that a lot of us get when we think about gravel riding is these are riders who maybe didn't quite cut the mustard at world tour level Pete certainly isn't one of those Almost a decade in the world tour with BMC, Trek, Segafredo, and Garmin Sharp. He's ridden grand tours. He was a staple in the world tour before deciding to take that slight fork in the road and pursue gravel racing. But he's got across there with a mentality that is. Professional. He's not there on a retirement loop. He is there to redefine gravel racing as a high-performance sport. Already has some notable big wins, including Belgium Waffle Ride, the Rift over in Iceland. He is an absolute hitter and a super interesting guy who's balancing gravel with van life and actually just this week had his newborn twins. So congratulations, Pete. That's a development since we recorded the interview. So congratulations, Pete. And I'm sure you have as many sleepless nights as james chasing that promotion at the moment so please welcome to the cyclist magazine podcast the amazing mr peter stetna pete welcome to cyclist magazine podcast hey thank you it's good to talk to you again it's good to have you. I was going to say good to have you back, but it's my first time chatting on the Cyclist Magazine podcast, but you've obviously been on the Roadman podcast with me.
1: Right. So yeah, welcome. I mean, welcome from the Cyclist Magazine side of things. I'm not sure if you know, but Anthony has joined us uh, for the next few episodes. Um, we've been doing this for a long time. So we've got a slightly different audience. We might end up talking to you about things that you and Anthony have uh, spoken about before. There's also a whole heap that you've been doing this year. I was just counting out the number of races
0: that mm. you've
1: done so far. And for someone that ostensibly is retired, I know that obviously you're still racing, but, you know, in, in terms yeah. of yeah. retired from the pro scene, from the world tour, from racing. Uh, in the
2: eyes of the UCI, yes. In I am the retired.
1: eyes of the UCI. Do, do anybody <laughs> else, any else, any eyes matter? No, it's just the ones from Eagle looking, looking down on us. Um, you've raced 15 races, I think, this year already. Um, but they have all been, and tell me how you describe it now, As a privateer in gravel, or would you prefer different types of words, off-roading only? Uh, Are you a privateer? Are you employed by yourself? Or are you an amateur technically? How does it work?
2: Uh, I am a privateer, and that is a term in, you know, I think it means different things in different professions. But, um, you know, funny enough, that was kind of a a term that me and some some video guys started in a project in 2020 as I jumped into this, you know, uh gravel individual space and um because it is you know it's it's on your own you know i am self-funded i create my own endorsements my own projects all of that um my own deals and i create my race budget out of that i create my salary to pay my mortgage out of that and everything so it is entirely a one person small business um and it was funny we kind of was like we you know we came up with this privateer term, even though I guess, you know, guys have kinda of done this in the mountain bike world for for years. Um and and as my career kind of became fruitful, uh, everyone started using the term and now it's like an industry term. Like, oh, there's a bunch of other racers who are like, Oh, I'm going the privateer model next year. I'm like, yeah.
0: uh, I had to look it up because I thought it was kind of like some sort of pirate. I was like, "This sounds kind of cool. Maybe Pete's also like aboard a ship two days a week and he's abducting cargo
1: vessels or something."
2: Swashbuckling the uh, the gravel seas, (laughs) man.
1: (laughs) You know, swashbuckling is the word. But it's funny because, in a sense, people cycling. Started from privateers, you know, the Tour de France. Mm -hmm. Obviously, people were doing all kinds of mad bike races, you know, Madison Square Gardens, people racing high wheelers, all that sort of stuff at the end of, you know, from the sort of 1860s onwards, I guess, as bikes evolved. But then the big race came along, 1903, Tour de France. Everyone was a privateer. Mm. It was run by a bloke who owned a newspaper and he said, right, come on, guys, come and sign up to this and we'll give you whatever it was, some stipend of like 15 francs a day or something just to cover your food. And if you win, great. If you don't, see you later. If you get punched, stabbed, mugged on the way, we, you know, no one's going to pick you up off the road. So I don't know. Do you get a sort of sense that you're going back to some roots, if you like, um, especially because you're going there with a lot of other colleagues from the World Tour? I think so.
2: Um, it is a more original and... Some could say old school organic form of cycling, um, you know, gravel kind of exploded as a greater rejection of, you know, the elitism that has become road cycling, I think, and, and it also with, you know, the, the safety thing of just getting off road, um, but yeah, I could see that.
0: But there's a great clip in, I think it's two years ago, 2020, when Wahoo Frontiers brought together these gravel athletes. Yeah. So there, there's a clip, I think it's you, Colin Strickland, Ian Boswell, and it's Ian Boswell been interviewed about your preparation. And you can just tell from Bozzy's answer, that you're not coming to gravel to retire it's just like okay pete's doing a different thing he's totally still high performance high performance mindset high performance training it just has a different width higher it's basically the only difference here from world tour
2: yeah it's um it is its own discipline now um and it very much was a right time right place but you know i saw what was happening and i saw that these were legitimate races in their own right and they deserve to have people focus on them in their own right and um You know, I didn't want it to just be like the Masters Tour of golf where the retired guys like still go and play together. Um, And that's happened now. I mean, and now especially with like the big money Grand Prix series and stuff, it's extremely competitive. Um, Almost, I I feel like this year it's actually almost starting to lose a little bit what made it special. And I've been struggling internally with that. But um, it is its own discipline. I think it's been shown now that, you know, a World Tour pro can't just, come and hop in and, and mob up because um like like you saw cam worf say after unbound it's there's so many other pieces besides just pedaling to be successful in these off-road races. A lot of risk management, a lot of um the way you ride your bike, right? The way you protect your bike to go faster than just
0: push. So you mentioned that Grand Prix series. Like when I look from the outside looking in at gravel, the attraction for it is it's somewhat countercultural. I almost think of a skateboarding or BMX kind of underground movement. That was the appeal of gravel, and that's what made it kind of cool. But how does that sit with now this big money Grand Prix series? And is it a road in some of its soul a little bit? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it's just a. I mean, it's more like high end mountain
2: bike. I think in its soul, because the Grand Prix is three mountain bike and three gravel races. Um, in the US, you're. All off-road is having kind of a tailwind effect because of the boom of gravel. So now we have ultra-distance mountain bike having a resurgence and all that. And a bunch of mountain bikers are coming into this space and proving to be very competitive at it. They're very good at it. They have the the natural skills. Um, So I don't think anything is, like, being lost per se. But, you know, there's – we are kind of hitting a golden era in professional – cycling in north america again you know kind of just like the mountain bike in the 90s where you know there's this this series and this effect and this this whole movement here and you can be here you know you don't have to head over to europe to be a professional right now which is you know what i had to do what a lot of my contemporaries had to do on the road um you know i do struggle with a little bit in that I do feel like it is... I am starting to see this win-it-all-cost mentality creep into gravel, um, which is a turnoff. And I know coming from the road, that is what I left. You know, I, I came to gravel because I saw these were hard races, but I was a person who rode a bike, not a bike racer that happened to be a human, right? The robotic marginal gains of the World Tour now is what I'm talking about. And, you know, I could race hard but joke around stay up late have beers with friends and you know the the race stopped at the timing mat and that was it and then we were we were all together again and um with the big money coming in now it's it's changing i mean people are you know it's it's a it's starting to become a profession first instead of a lifestyle lifestyle first um which i think is only natural um but I had to personally step back after Unbound this year and try to re-remember and realize why I came to this in the first place. And I need to do the races and ride the way that brings me joy. Because if I get sucked into chasing only series points and pure performance, then um, then I should have stayed in the World Tour.
1: Um, and that's, that's not true to myself so did you see it like that in terms of your journey there was so you were would you be 32 when you stopped racing world tour
0: 31
2: uh something like that yeah let's say 32 <laughs> yeah i think so were
1: you building up to that thinking like, i can see this thing happening over here i can see this other type of cycling and i want to go into that and that's why you left the world tour or were there other factors at play and if so what were they
2: you know it was a it was a very much a right time right place kind of thing um but you know it it was having the open mindset you know in in 2019 at 32 years old you know I was I had told and gotten Trek Segafredo my team at the time to write um a few of these quote unquote alternative races into my contract meaning you know I want to do these these make sense they'll be really good training for me they're great marketing for you cuz they're really big in the US and um they it just it's a win-win and so they wrote it in um that unbeknownst to me was um almost a strike against me in the eyes of some of the team managers they thought I was uh just out to lunch and not dedicated to my real profession um they thought I was just on a or kind of like a retirement tour um not dedicated so um I continued to race and then when it came and it proved fruitful I mean the the eye-opening experience that was gravel, the, the marketing boom buoyed by it, uh, all of it, it got my, my mental wheels turning, but you know, it's when you grow up as, as a bike rider and I'm sure you guys can relate, like you're told the, the world tour and the tour de France, that's the holy grail. Like you, you want to strive for that to make it. Um, so I didn't want to consciously give that up. Like, you know, that, that's a scary leap. Um, and, and it seems stupid. No one had done that, you know? Um, so, coming contract time my idea was to kind of still do both you know it was um you know i can be a gravel specialist because these races are booming they're multiplying there's a lot of them but like i want to stay on the road kind of like a little thing like kind of what ef is doing with locky and the team wasn't into it at all um so you know the the team there was kind of like you know we if if you know you're not on the team maybe we'll have to send another rider to make sponsors happy but the Traditional race team, not Trek management, was very against it. Um, So I couldn't blend the two. So it kind of had to become, I was forced into a position of, do I double down and recommit to only road in Europe and just do what I've been doing for the last decade? Or do I try to just do this whole other thing that I have an idea about? And I chose to do the whole other thing. So I was kind of pushed off a little bit.
0: Isn't it interesting the sort of... the conflicting motivations between like the old school directors who all they care about is you know some half known races in belgium and then the main races that we know on the world tour and they'd much rather see a performance in a horse or hagelands than they would see you get a top five in unbound right. but the reality of sponsors is sponsors come on board these teams to promote their products, to sell right. products. And you riding a Trek to a top five in Unbound versus a podium in Horse Doors and Tigerlands, the amount of eyeballs on that's non-comparable.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, it was in 2019, you know, uh, the marketing team at Trek uh, divulged to me that, you know, in terms of their whole marketing year, right? Like they're, they're the sports, the road teams, like big splashes, you know, Chicone had uh, the yellow jersey in the Tour. That was their biggest thing. Chicone won a stage in the Giro. That was their second biggest. Their third and fourth biggest booms were my Belgian waffle win and my second place at Unbound. And then everything else the road team did, Pais Vasco's, Tortoise Swiss's, whatever, miles beneath it um, in terms of a marketing uh, boom. So it made sense. Um, But, you know, in, in the traditional mindset of things, I think a lot of team managers and sponsors, their job is to... Win bike races. That's the traditional format. That's what works, and they basically deal with you know sponsors and you know marketing requests almost as like a, a necessary evil to just get on with what they want to do, which is the act of racing a bike. And it's I think to be good at what they do, they have to do that because that's the end goal, and they they have a means to their goal. However, I also think that cycling's changed uh maybe not as much in the world tour but everywhere else and gravel especially is you know it's you have to realize like at the end of the day winning a race is and all of it any racing any pro sport is advertising right you have to think of like the, the greater means behind the whole equation and um and that's why i view myself actually as more of an ambassador than even a professional racer now i mean i think Pro racing and and doing well validates a product to the greater consumer, right? I mean, it shows it's good, it shows it's fast, you can show it's cool, or there's a a style you can you know subscribe to basically. But it's about being an ambassador. Um, and I also think the model of the athletes changing because in the past you could just cross the line and point at your jersey and everyone's stoked, but you know and. Now it's the rise of social media and all this stuff. There's so many more obligations on the modern athlete that, you know, you really have to be a multifaceted person with, you know, you have to be able to share political beliefs or whatever it is, right? Like you get asked about everything um, for better or worse. So I think the whole model's kind of changing.
1: So how have you managed to manage that for yourself? Because although, as you say, the model's changing and there's just so many more impositions, on an athlete's time beyond just competing in the sport that they're in. But at the same time, if you're racing for a bike team, then you've got somebody that literally packs your lunch for you and mm-hmm. rubs you down at the end of the day and probably takes you to one side and advises you what you may or may not want to say on social media. Yeah, But suddenly, you're still in that game, but you don't have anyone, like you said at the top of the, the chat, you're a privateer. Mm-hmm. So how have you managed to kind of square that away? And, and when when the hell do you get time to rest <laughs> is the bigger question.
2: Um, I am busier now than I ever was. You know, I think I do probably 70-hour weeks around, I guess, privateering, you could say, of which maybe, you know, 25 are training. I'm still trying to do pro hours. Um, so there's a lot of other stuff. You know, social media is a big request, uh, calls, planning, logistics budgeting all of that stuff um so no i yeah it's it's busy but it's all fun work you know it's your project it's your small business it's your startup and it's your baby and it's something i'm more passionate about i think i personally enjoy the business of cycling almost as much as the race i like trying to understand it um yeah it's uh but it it's a lot um and you you also uh it has been a trial by fire you know i think um yeah, You know, I've gotten in trouble on social media plenty of times in my career, in gravel and in, in the road days before, and you learn what to say, what not to say, um, and uh, and all of that. I think um, it is interesting right now that I don't think, not anyone from the road could just come to gravel. You do have to have an entrepreneurial mindset. I mean, I will be the first to tell you that, you know, I am not the most talented racer in the world. Um I was on on a good day. I was, you know, a top 20 climber in the world tour on my day, but you know, I was not the big winner. Um, but I don't think any rider with just the legs could come in. I think you need that entrepreneurial mindset and that work ethic to really succeed right now. And I don't know if that'll change. I don't know if we're going to start seeing more of like the, the factory team model coming into gravel where people literally just have to race their bikes. Um, you know time will tell
0: i think as a fan why i love it is we're starting to see personalities again True gravel Mm. and i think as a 16 year old or 17 year old who's listening to this podcast and they're starting to think about you know what it means to make it and the patrick lefevre idea of make it there's only one way to make it it's getting into the world tour and then winning the biggest bike races in the world right but now guys like you ted king colin strickland you're opening up these new avenues of what it means to make it in gravel. But then there's also other creators out there showing what it means to make it. You know, you can spin up a YouTube channel about cycling travel the world, ride your bike 25 hours a week and get paid by big brands to do this. You could start a podcast. You know, there's loads of different ways to make it in cycling now. And that's changed in the last 10 years. And you know, you're largely to thank for creating one of those avenues.
2: Oh, thank you. Um, And that is, uh, you know, that's, that's where I see us all is like, we're all obsessed with bikes, and we all want to do bikes, right. And we're all trying to get that's my angle, right? Like, whatever that is, I want to get paid to do bikes right now. I love racing. I'm a competitive ass. Like I just, you know, I want to, I, I want to go fast for a little while. Um, I know that's going to change someday. You know, you know, you guys are having, you know, your podcasts and your magazine and, and you are getting paid to do bikes and live in this world. So I think we're all kind of following that same dream a little bit. Um, and the world is so big and vast with so many opportunities that if you can find... If you are that sixteen-year-old, and you can find something that sets you apart, whatever that is, there's so many possibilities. Just be creative, then um, the, the opportunities there.
0: Does it need a different motivation piece? Because if I look at the Tour right now, and I know the last two years have been an exception with the uh, COVID restrictions on fans, but back now, the crowds are at the Tour, at the top of La Super-Planche de Belfi last week. Mm-hmm. The fans are there. Gravel, we don't typically see that. It's through a different motivation. I know when I was racing and the fans were there, it's almost it's like taking a jail when you hit them fans it's like oh my god i'm 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 powered off their energy almost
2: i mean i'll i mean yeah the, the the fans in the tour de france or the tour of the basque country are unlike anything else and it's such a high um that's something i'll always miss and that's so unique to big european road sit racing um gravel's more of a participant sport it's not so much a spectator sport um I think they're still trying to crack the egg on how to live stream it for fans. But I think at the end of the day, it's, it really is just we're out there with a few thousand friends trying to have this crazy adventure together and then share the stories afterwards. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's powers in like, kind of like the Iron Man. It's, it's participant-based, right? And of course, there's a bit of a spotlight on, on the, the folks in the front.
1: How does it kind of unfold compared to a World Tour race? So your average gravel race, I'm thinking you've got that as much as you have the fans lining the road um, up out to somewhere in the Basque Country, cheering you on. And Mm -hmm. like Anthony says, you know, that's a massive amount of motivation and impetus to keep pushing. You do something like Unbound and we see the pictures over here in the UK and there's a lot of nothing, a lot of flat unboundless nothing (laughs) and i'm assuming you find yourself on your own quite a lot of the time whereas once upon a time you're kind of in this big rolling office where you can kind of sit up eat have a chat to your mate he might not even be on your team it's just somebody that you know because you're spending three weeks with the person right how do you kind of find or is there that same sense of camaraderie for starters And, and when there isn't how are you pulling yourself along
2: um well, I think there's two angles to that question, you know, first is the, I'll say the camaraderie is not so much between teammates. I mean, in a grand tour too, it's you're not friends with the other guys for three weeks. Like you don't even talk to other teams. You just, you know, line up with your team in the Peloton and you fight. Um, and Ten Tendam actually said it best. He was like, man, like, like now that I have this gravel thing, like I just wish that like at the end of the Tour de France, when you finish, this is a direct quote from Lawrence, but like, you finish on the on the Champs Elysees, like I wish all the teams, instead of finishing getting scrolled away to some sponsor dinner with a bunch of people you don't know and like kind of quickly seeing like your loved ones and stuff and having to do like another autograph signing or obligation, like if we all just circled the buses and like had like a massive like catered dinner or barbecue or something and just like talk shit with each other, you know, like oh remember that time you like pushed me into that ditch like you asked, you know, like and just laughed about it. And that's kind of what, because that's what's happening in gravel is it's a cutthroat race, but then at the, like the race stops at the timing mat, there's no more grudges and you just have a good time together, um, until the next time you race. So that the camaraderie is kind of with your competitors a little bit more, I'd say in gravel. Um, and then as far as the, the effort, right, you asked, um, how to stay motivated. It is, it's just a different type of. Effort. It's more of a a journey. It's not just quite point A to point B. Um, There's you know something like Unbound is. It's the expectation is you go through these highs and lows and you find something deeper out there. It is a personal journey. Um, Physically, I think the uh, for those on who know road cycling, I would kind of relate it to more of an attrition based. Like imagine you make the breakaway in your road race and then you have to ride hard all day and burn each other a little bit, but then all of a sudden, oh crap, the breakaway is actually going to make it to the line and you have to somehow attack out of that. So it's more of an all day power type of thing with, you know, smaller spikes due to extreme fatigue at the end, instead of in a road race, you know, hiding in a Peloton and then a big explosion at the end and these vicious attacks, um, that's kind of where it differs physically.
0: The UCI is trying to get its tentacles into gravel at the moment. Uh, what's the mm. internal view on the gravel world championships and the UCI gravel series?
2: Uh, you know, that's a, that's a nuanced question because, well, I don't have a UCI license. <laughs> I, mean, I, I am unlicensed, I guess, because I'm not a pro, right? <laughs> um, it's, we, a bunch of uh, my my colleagues and I, you know, we started talking in the off season as the UCI started making these moves. Um, and I think the end decision just kind of came down to a mutual respect and a lack of it from the UCI, actually. Um, because, you know, as far as we can tell, you know, the UCI never tried to come here and figure it out and talk to us and see why it's expanding. why Why is this so successful? What is this anomaly? They just were like, Gravel. We're going to do that, and we're going to make money doing that. Um, and they just set out on their own protocol. And as far as I can tell, the races, while I think people are having fun in the the series they've created, um, they look completely different. They're much shorter. They're you know, it's it's just a different style of race. Um, and in the U.S maybe it even stems from early days of mountain biking because mountain biking started as something different than we know now, before the UCI changed it to their format. Um, there's just a massive distrust um, between the riders and the the organizers. Um, and so, you know, for us, it was kind of a question of like, what are you gonna do to help this? Like wh- what benefit are you gonna bring besides charge me hundreds of dollars for a license that, you know, I already have enough races on my plate. Um, And then as far as the world championship thing went is, you know, they were, they, they didn't even announce their world championship until like, I think last month now, I mean, they kept saying it was, you know, US and Lake Tahoe, and then Italy, and there's not a date and there is a date and like, all these other events have had their registrations open since, you know, before the new year even started. So sold
0: out in a lot of cases, like unbound, like on a lottery system.
2: Yeah, I mean, we'd all created our own calendars already like we'd made our commitments um and for them to just come in and and actually conflict with a big race that is here in the US that went through it the the respectable way um you know it was it was just basically like i i don't see any benefit um and at the same time though i realize that the, it's very hypocritical of me to say they're not welcome and try to be a gatekeeper of it because that's the whole point of Gravel, right, is to be inclusive. So I got to be very aware that I can't be a gatekeeper. So I have to just say that, like, us, the riders, me, you guys, like, you vote with your registration. You go where you want. And and if the UCI creates something that actually looks like a good time and is actually worth me taking out an annual license for, like, yeah, I'll do it. But... um, I don't need a. I don't need to chase a rainbow jersey uh, to have a, an extremely fulfilling career right now. Um, and I still don't see how they are helping this movement because it seems like it's just whatever they do is trying to create another class system. Um, they just have a template.
0: But isn't this the irony of? gravel at the moment and the weird place we find ourselves in because it's so popular because of the lack of rules yeah i think of the motivational speaker the ex-us marine jocko willick he has a phrase that says discipline equals freedom it's almost like rules equal freedom for gravel like if we don't have rules around using aero bars everyone uses aero bars if we don't have rules about going to wind tunnels everyone's going to go to wind tunnels and then the lack of rules is actually what stifles the coolness of it it's true
2: It's such a weird spot right now. And there is not a right answer. I mean, it is like it's, and and it sounds so dumb to say it's like, it's a feeling you have to kind of understand. And and I've made my career on analyzing and and trying to understand what makes this special and to be good at at that. Right. And it is, everyone talks about the rightfully mocked, you know, spirit of gravel and the unwritten (laughs) rules and all this stuff. And I can tell you like, they exist because it's it's kind of a feeling of, like, this is why it's rad. But as things expand, as things get bigger, and not everyone has the same understanding of what is cool and rad, that that starts to change. And I agree. I think you there are rules. I mean, safety is a big one. There's a lot of bad crashes in gravel because there are a lack of rules, right? There, and, and I think rules have a time and a place. Um, yeah. But I just, I mean, the UCI is not necessarily bringing that um it just doesn't yeah and, and also what i think is happening in my crystal ball is um i think the uci is gonna own gravel in europe because as far as i can tell and you guys please correct me if i'm wrong but you know this this gravel racing thing is so big here i mean we have conflicting weekends with races nationwide we have like 700 gravel events in the u.s like we don't need more right but europe is as, as as best i understand it is uh Gravel is very popular, but gravel racing isn't quite there yet. It seems like you guys are very gravel racing curious, even though like bikepacking adventures, ultra days on the bike are alive and well. Um, and so I think, and, and in, the, in Europe, the UCI isn't as, as um, questioned as it is here in the US. There's not as big of a distrust. Like, you know, if you guys want to go race a bike, you're like, oh yeah, you take a license. You know, that's kind of what happens in Belgium. Right? You want to race a bike, you take out a UCI license. So I think the UCI realizes and possibly thinks that, you know, gravel is going to be hard to get into here in the U.S., even though this is kind of like the, the stronghold of it. Um, and they're going to create their own template and tap that entire European market. And I think European gravel and American gravel are going to look and feel entirely different. That's just my
1: my hunch. And what does, um, for example, uh, your family make of it? Because your your uncle was a racer, your dad was a racer, and your granddad raced. Uh, even though you um, mm. also had some musicians in the family, I think as well. So obviously, you, you could have been up on the yeah. world. You know, you could have been seeing Carmen at the opera, I'm sure, as well as racing across the pros in Kansas.
2: Oh no, I'm tone deaf, man.
1: <laughs> oh really? <laughs>
2: <laughs> you, you look like a man who plays a banjo. Yeah. <laughs> i do like me some folk music yes
1: (laughs) but yeah you're um uh certainly your dad and your uncle they they grew up and started to race Mm. in the 70s in america trying to break into the european scene around the same time Mm -hmm. i'm guessing as tom ritchie and joe breezer and um gary fisher and people they were coming up through road biking ultimately getting like pissed off with road biking and they went let's go and do something a bit more fun yeah and now that you you know the kind of second generation of that has turned its back turned his back on road cycling once again to go off-road i'm yeah just wondering do you have what kind of conversations do you have with uh with those older guys
2: that's funny it's pretty cyclical isn't it um you know and i bet you road's gonna be hot as soon as you know there's another yeah (laughs) super champ in the u.s like a you know if we have another lance or something you know um Yeah, you know, my family, um, they're just happy for me. You know, they. my wife tells me, my mom and my sisters who, you know, grew up with me doing my World Tour road stuff, just uh, they say I smile more than I ever have. I'm, I'm a happier racer. I'm not as stressed. So, um, you know, this is the best call I've made for my career. It fits my personality more. Um, you know, I can say no to a race and go to an important family reunion because that's actually – celebrated in gravel, right? Like people are, you know, it's it's about being relatable. Um, you know, my dad and my uncle, um, it's bike racing, man. They just, they're stoked on it. They want to hear the stories. They like the adventures. Um, and it's even funny enough, like uh, I had a call with Gary Fisher last week, actually, because he's about to give a conference talk. And he's like, you know, like, I'm going to talk about gravel too. Like, I want to get your insight. I was like, dude, just basically it's exactly what you did with the mountain bike in the 80s and just put yourself in today's modern market. <laughs> it's the same thing, the same feeling.
0: I think there's a load of listeners out there, Pete, that are intrigued by Gravel. And this is sort of prompted uh, something that I'm working on at the moment because we have this idea of Gravel Pro. You know, you're calling it privateer. People are calling it Gravel Pro. Yep. But I was chatting to a buddy, I was like, there's, there's no entry level to to call myself a pro cyclist i need to be hitting minimum wage you know maybe i would discount Mm -hmm. conti riders as pros and Mm -hmm. from pro conti up i would call them pro bike riders you need a contract you need a wage you need a team but to be a pro on gravel you don't really need anything only to be able to sustain a lifestyle to get to the races and do it so sort of tongue in cheek on my podcast i'm like okay i'm gonna be a gravel pro yeah so i had the idea that i was gonna train for six months kind of on the quiet and then start going to these races then i was like noah gravel's about telling the story so i'm like i want to show up in terrible shape get my head kicked in because it's more identifiable for listeners because you ted king colin all the hitters you guys speak about this you're you're in the tech matrix of this techno bubble and 42 tires 38 tires knobbly skinnies ratios most of our everyday listeners to this podcast it's lost on them they're struggling to figure out and just getting on top of road tech and now we're moving into gravel where they're being introduced to like, job security bridge. man
2: <laughs> you gotta you gotta follow your your favorite pros to understand what they're running so you have the best chance of success i mean
0: yeah <laughs> but, but this is it so help help break down both for the listeners and for me like this new language in gravel like what tires are you guys running or how much is that change in event to event oh uh, every event
2: i change my setup a little bit uh especially tires you know it's Um, gravel is so equipment specific. I mean, tire pressure to the, you know, percentage points of PSIs and stuff and thinking about how they're going to heat up throughout the day, gear size, gear ratios, internal rim widths, way more than I ever did on the road. But, um, on, it's not on mountain bikers understand that better because mountain bikers already do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a flat tire will ruin your day out there. Um especially if it's a bad one, like a sliced sidewall. So it's not just about, as I said, pedaling, it's about like, you know, the, the right tire pressure is going to mitigate your upper body, um, fatigue and stuff. Because if you think of your tires, that's actually your original form of suspension, right? That's what cushions the bump underneath the road, you know, from the road to your body. Um, it's, and the widths, it's about hooking up. It's about not using too much energy like a mountain bike tire, but still protecting yourself. Um, there's so many things. And then there's like what you're bringing, like the tire plugs, the the fix-it setup, and all of that. You
0: know, it's, Like I had no idea these plugs were even a thing. I'm doing the rifts next week. Oh, you're going to have so much fun. You're bringing plugs? I'm like, plugs? Yeah. What the hell are put pl- Like book plugs? What, am I, what are you talking about? Plugs?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, tire plugs. Uh, you got to – there are these amazing little Kevlar needles that – uh, cause you gotta be running tubeless. First of all, if anyone out there listening is running tubes, <laughs> you're messing up, man. Just a tubeless and sealant. I have not had a tube, um, since my world tour training bike. Um, it's tubeless and sealant. Um, the sealant will do a lot. Uh, but if the sealant fails, you have these little plugs that you shove in your tire and it basically is like an instant patch. Um, and then should you have lost enough PSI, then you need your CO2 inflator, your mini pump to just top it off. Um, and that'll keep you rolling fast. Um, so it's always about mitigation strategy and, uh, being quick on the fly. Um, you know, and then there was another thing that, um, you brought up about being a a gravel pro and you are just going to be a gravel pro. Um, I am a gravel pro. (laughs) Good. Yeah, man. Um, I think that's, uh, I like it. I, I think that, that that's what's special right now. And that's why I am concerned as I alluded to earlier about the, uh, the extreme proification, and the win at all cost mentality of gravel, because right now you can just line up against any, any of the the main hitters in gravel. Um, and if you're a young rider and you impress, you're going to get noticed, right? You don't have to get selected onto this elite team and make the race selection and all of that. Like you, there is an easier pipeline to get, to get noticed
0: um, by literally just signing up. But also you don't seem to need to win races for it, which is awesome because it's feeding into this. Hold on. I can actually be a pro and have a legitimate career in this without winning the big bike races, which is different to road. Like I look at uh, Ashton Lambie and obviously he's the fastest ever guy in a 4K pursuit. I think he's the only guy ever to do a 359 for four kilometers on the track. But he's not a gravel rider of note, at least in the results. But yet he's still able to be a gravel pro. I mean, he has a story. Um, I mean, Ashton wouldn't be able
2: to do what he does, and he's a good friend of mine, actually. Um, he wouldn't be able to do what he does without his accolades on the track. I mean, you need something that sets you apart. Um, and I think he's got. He he knows because his story is he actually started on gravel before he ever went to the track. Just that's he rode on a grass track even. Um, And he was doing these ultra endurance, like all day across state things. So it is about a story. And I think performing still counts at the end of the day. I think you have to be fast enough to like, you don't have to win every race, right? You don't have to be the, the race killer. You have to be able to go fast enough to show you're relevant to, to have a talking point. But beyond that, you, you know, you're an ambassador really. Um, And it's about having that story. But, you know, and and that's kind of what I was getting to, though, is that as soon as you start having these custom-molded aero bars and wind tunnel tests and gravel and all this stuff, and and if that becomes the norm, then the cost to enter is so high. That is prohibitive to the talented rider who just wants to hop into the race. And should they, you know, have the legs to go toe-to-toe with us and get noticed, all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, no, actually... You know, you need to be able to have the funds or have your parents, you know, send you to the wind tunnel and all these, you know, barriers to entry to actually be competitive. And I see that's happened in the road, right? Especially with time trials. If you don't have these fancy-ass aero bars now, like you're you're losing 50 watts or whatever they say. So it's, I see where that, that has, I see the end result of that. And that's kind of why I'm very against all, like all the, the marginal gains creeping into gravel because I lived that on the other side.
1: I can see Anthony's eyes going in a in a way where he's thinking, okay, this is stacking up. I could be quite good at this. We don't need – I don't need to be in a wind tunnel. I don't need fancy kit. Uh, I don't necessarily need to win, but I yeah. do need to be a good ambassador. And was, I've definitely got legs for my road days. This could work out well. But I want to come back to the point where you didn't yeah. really know what tire plugs were. And I feel like <laughs> uh-huh. I feel like we really need to address what Anthony needs to be packing to take to Iceland for the rift.
2: Okay. So the rift, oh man. Well, first of all, make sure your credit card is topped off because the cost of living is really high in Iceland. I, I just <laughs> just rented a car and I know that it was rough. Uh just just look at their numbers. Don't don't try to do the conversion to Euros in your head, unfortunately. Um And just enjoy it for what it is. A burger is going to be stupid expensive, but it's still a burger. Um, Yeah, the Rift is really cool. I mean, you feel like you're riding on an alien planet out there. Um, It's a lot of volcanic pumice. So I'm talking thinking tires, you know, it's that soft, like almost sandy gravel, you know. So you want volume, kind of like sand riding to like keep yourself on top of it. And if you have like a little 33 or whatever, you're just going to sink, Um, So what do you like, 42s or wider? Yeah, I rode 42s last year. I think Colin had 42s there as well. Um, And uh, you need a really nice range of gears because some of those steep run-ups, you're like riding up the sides of these like volcanoes. Um, Super cool. Like otherworldly, but, um, you know, so definitely have your mountain bike shoes on, no road cleats. You know, sometimes people run road cleats. If you're like, I'm not going to actually need to unclip in this gravel race, you will be running and walking at Iceland due to these 30% runups and, uh, multiple Creek crossings that could be like waist deep, um, depending on, on the conditions. Um, so you definitely want your mountain bike shoes. You want your 42 tires. I would say don't go less than a 38. Um, I would say, 40 to 45 is even better. Something with some little bit of side knobs, some lower rolling resistance, um, just because there is a lot of pavement out there too. Um, and uh, definitely a rain jacket no matter what, because the weather just like, it literally turns on a dime out there. Uh, it can be sunny and then all of a sudden there's a squall that comes through. And, uh, and then there's just, there's, there's one section of like 20 miles, like 30K of washboard from hell and it's going to break your soul <laughs> just, you're just getting you're like bouncing up more than you're bouncing forward um so just just mentally prepare for that and realize when it gets on the other side your your body's going to feel so much better
0: because i'm feeling so left out now because obviously peace has won the rift last year and two years ago i think you guys have basically bookended the event james you had a
1: long day out there when you wrote it it was yeah it was i think i, I know those washboards from hell that 30k stretch
0: Oh, you raced it last year.
1: Well, I mean, I I showed up and I pedaled the bike for some of it. I wouldn't say race. <laughs> yes. It wasn't those. It was the first. I think it was the first year they did it, actually. Uh, and I had a Lauf, oh, okay. a Lauf okay. True Grip bike and had um, a Lauf fork on it, which for people that don't know, is mm. basically, it's a really clever fork. Oh, it's wild. The guy who designed it used to work in um, uh, human prosthetics, and it came from a kind of Type of walking assistance mm. thing, so it's not actually <clears throat> carbon fiber leaf springs. It's a fiberglass sort of leaf spring. Anyway, I'm getting off the subject. Point <laughs> being, I had the bike, I had the kit. It was absolutely amazing, and Super cool. I and we yeah. had all of the weather that you just described. And I thought I was flying. I hit those washboards, and we were, I was probably about 15k in or something, and thinking, Joe, you know what I can do this? Did you did you drink the water in like the in the streams? Uh. Pfft. I I can't remember. I think, I reckon we filled up. At the aid station? From streams, yeah. Oh, from streams? Yeah, from, there was one, because it's pretty wild. You know, I kind of lost my mind a little bit. There's one point where we were literally cycling in the middle of um, uh, a herd of wild Icelandic horses. They just came out from nowhere, and and we were just in the middle of them. (laughs) And I've never seen a beast nor man be able to go up such a steep incline sideways. This horse was like off camera <laughs> about 45 degrees and somehow managed to scramble up out of the road. You know, stuff which pro riders, you know, would have to get a cherry picker to go over. It's absolutely incredible. Um, but yeah, those those washboards I wasn't ready for. And um, I split my sidewall and then sealant, you know, went everywhere, just couldn't, just couldn't make it seal. Eventually uh, got a tube in there, rode that, split that, got another tube, rode that, split that. Oof. And probably about... 20k away from town i was just like you know f this i'm just this isn't my bike i borrowed it from lauf i'm just gonna ride the rim so i rode that for, <laughs> rode that for a long time and this this english lad came past he's like all right mate where are you going with that and i was like well i'm trying to get back to town and he was like, do you want a spare tube? And I, you know, I had that pride of like, no, I don't need a tube. I don't care yeah, anymore. Yeah. But he he, yeah. made, he he stopped me and he made me put one in and we, and we rolled back in. And I crossed the line after about 11 and a half hours. It was insane. And then Ooh, That's the, a long day. Yeah. But then the maddest thing is then the, ice, so the cool. Icelanders, as you all know, um, they just want to drink because it's almost like the, the sun doesn't go yep. down. And we were drinking. We got kicked out of the bar yep. and the guy had a boot full of booze because they were sponsoring it. He was like, just don't worry. Let's just sit yep. in the car park. And we were there till six in the morning drinking and the sun never really went down. It was the weirdest day. It was so good. Um, so yeah, Anthony, get ready.
2: <laughs> that's the whole point, man. Like that's the gravel experience that I think everyone loves. And, you know, they're doing it right over there. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I asked about the water because they in the, even in the race book, they're like, oh yeah, you can, you know, there are the aid stations, but you can just fill up your bottle in the streams. They're pure. And then I was, you know, riding through there and I saw like, the horses and the, the sheep still. And I was like, <laughs> I don't want to trust this. <laughs> but um I know a lot of people who did just like, just gulp out of the yeah. stream.
0: So um, it's different though. Like you were six and a half hours, be Jebs 11 and a half hours. It's a certain <laughs> yeah. Bear grill survival you need for that.
2: But we went through the same things and we can relate on the washboards and the horses running up the and all of that. That's what's so cool about it. And drinking our faces off in, under the midnight sun.
1: Yeah, know? yeah. But what I was going to ask you, what, what spares do you take? Because, again, if you're a World Tour, going back to the World Tour versus the gravel kind of contrast, mm. you just, you, you've got a car full of bikes and spares and you've got a service course in Belgium or whatever. Right. You've got absolutely everything you could wish for and you don't have to lift an Allen key. But when you're out there racing, um, racing the rift, racing unbound, something like that, you've got to be really quite self-supported. Yeah, But you also can't weigh yourself down. So what do you take in the way of spares? And at what point do you go, I'm shit canning this. There's no point in me trying to fix this because the race is gone. Or do you always make sure you can get to the end?
2: Well, it's, you know, yeah, gravel is definitely, uh, it's it's hallowed in in self-sufficiency. Like the, the kind of point is you you finish no matter what. Right. You try to race, but if things go pear shaped, you have, you find another adventure. There's some other silver lining out there. Right. Like, you know, last year in Big Sugar, I was taken out of the running by flats, you know, and, and I was, I think, in fifth place chasing. And I came up on a, a brewery in the middle of the, in the middle of the woods. Like one of the aid stations was at this brewery in the forest in the middle of Arkansas. And I was just like, you know, I looked around at everyone filling their bottles really fast and grabbing gels and taking off. And I realized like the wind was quite far, you know, ahead. Um, And I just realized in that moment, like, no, I want, I want a beer. Like, so I, I, you know, put my bike on the wall, walked into the bar, ordered a pint. (laughs) And, and someone talked, took a photo of it actually, you know, and it went on the live stream of like, you know, Stetna mid race having beer. Um, And funnily enough, that, I shared it later um, that got more likes than me winning crusher and the tusher, which is a very big gravel race. Um, and it, that shows how, you know, it winning is not everything in gravel still, which is pretty cool. So um, it is about being self-sufficient. It's about finding your own adventure and your best day on the bike out there, whatever that means. It means something different for everyone. Uh, and so as far as provisions to succeed, I think you need to weigh the course and the potential catastrophe, you know, like sometimes like unbound, everything can go wrong out there. So, you know, I've got two tubes, two CO2s, a tire patch, a tire boot, um, you know, multiple plugs, refills for those plugs, everything, right? A chain breaker tool, like a really hefty multi-tool with everything. Something like, um, like Crusher and the Tusher last weekend, you know, it's, you know, it's a mountain climb fest at high elevation. Weight is paramount. Uh, the course is not that technical, um, except for some bad washboard again. You're sensing a theme here. And <laughs> um, and uh, so I brought, like, just a single, you know, Tubalito super light tube, a single plug kit, um, a single CO2, no hand pump, and uh, a really light multi-tool. And, you know, you kind of realize there that, you know, you're, you're going for the race and, and should catastrophe a basic problem happen you can fix it and should something really bad happen you know I was selfishly gonna try to you know rely on a, a good Samaritan further back and you know get help you know 30 minutes later but somehow finish the
0: day um you kind of like my girlfriend going out trying her I'd be like you bring in <laughs> you bring in tube and pump she's like don't even know how to use them there's no point someone will stop and help me I'm like yeah. fuck wait lads, yep. lads just don't have that <laughs>
2: Yeah, I just, uh, you know, kind of smile and, and wave to some people
0: on the side of the road and try to act cute. And... Bat the eyelids. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah.
0: Uh, Pete, it's been a fascinating insight into the world of gravel, the ever-evolving world of gravel. And I think the work that you're doing, as we talked about, to create that new channel for up-and-coming kids and a new way to, you know, quote-unquote, make it in cycling, I think it's important work. Mm. And definitely, I'm looking forward to
2: following the journey. Thank you. That was a That was a fun chat. And it is changing fast, yeah. and it's just... Yeah, we all have our finger on the pulse. And just at the end of the day, you find your best day on the bike, whatever that means for you, and it'll resonate with someone.
1: Thanks for chatting, Pete. Thanks, Pete. Thanks. So that is, that was, that still is, he still exists. That's uh, Pete Stetner, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. And he does really, he does seem to be like he's loving life. Um, as Anthony said at the top of the show, he's also added... Um, couple of kids into that some twins so he's definitely got his uh, training load cut out but i think that the way that the calendar seems to work for people doing gravel racing it is just way more flexible it just sounds way more fun but i do wonder how long do you think that that's going to last can that last well you know where do you see gravel being in sort of three years time
0: it's interesting, Pete mentioned that idea of the spirit of gravel and I often wonder how long that will endure because the spirit of gravel is is what makes it fun at the moment. The spirit of gravel is what allows Pete to talk to sponsors and not commit to doing a 40 race calendar because it's, it's so chill, it's laid back, that's the gravel vibe where you can do sort of one race a month. But as more and more cash comes into the system and we're seeing more and more, you know, riders who didn't make it as world tour riders or riders who are finishing up as world tour riders, trying to make an alternate career as a gravel pro. Well, now we have an increasing number of people battling for a limited number of resources. There's only so many, so many bike brands, so many bike sponsors. So as competition for those sort of privateer spots increases, I'm wondering, will the bike companies or these brands that are investing in these athletes start to turn the screws a little bit and tighten up or just require a little more of these athletes? Will they require them to attend more races, to create more content, to do more PR work? And does that in itself then erode the spirit of gravel? Like, are we in this perfect sweet spot right now? And we're going to look back
1: at this in five years and go, "Ah, oh, gravel, that was fun. Will it last it? Yeah, obviously, yeah. It goes without saying, it's impossible to know. But I, I do just, I look at these, there's incredible parallels, unmissable parallels between the advent, of the birth of mountain biking uh, back in Marin County, um, you know, tail end of the 70s going into the 80s with the likes of um, Charlie Kelly and Gary Fisher and Tom Ritchie and literally the bikes that they took off-road were old school, 27 and a half inch wheeled, steering bikes or 700c wheeled racers and they had drop bar handlebars slowly but surely the kit grew into mountain bikes and yeah mountain biking if you look at what they were doing back then cut off jeans uh bowling down fire roads on schwinn beach cruisers back in the day and then (laughs) proper mountain bikes with suspension people like you know you look at ned overend a big mountain bike racer um in the early 90s and you just see him wearing what we would consider road cycling kit, and it was. And man, it suddenly looked really dull and boring and clinical, and people just cycling as fast as they can over really kind of, just kind of like bumpy roads, really. But now you look at mountain biking where it is, and yeah, there's a lot of money, and you see, you know a company like Red Bull comes in and just smashes it out of the park, and you've got people like um, Brendan Fairclough or uh Danny Hart or whoever you know they're making they're making good money being mountain bikers but I feel like there's a spirit still there it still looks like a heap of fun the people that still go and see it look like they're having a lot of fun I don't want to say it doesn't look professional because it is but it looks still like a fun professional thing and yeah cross country cross country's is kind of like a little bit boring whatever we'll just kind of leave that one to the side but there's always other offshoots there's enduro races there's still the big calendar events that professionals do like mountain of hell which also amateurs can do so we haven't lost the sorts of things that maybe gravel has at the moment which we're worried about losing which is the mass participation events people getting kind of squeezed out for places because the elites just have to show up because the sponsors are telling them you have to race but i reckon in the short term yeah it's going to get a bit it's just going to get a bit muddied and it's the money will pour in and people will try and start making money out of it And if you're a racer, you're a billboard, aren't you? You've got to show up and you've got to race. And that's just going to change the complexion of things, I think.
0: I'd love to know how much they're earning. Uh, There's a little trend in podcast land at the moment. Well, it's not even at the moment. One of the OGs in podcast land, I think he's been around since like 2004, 2005. Pat Flynn is his name. He runs a podcast, completely different niche. Interesting, though, called the Smart Passive Income Podcast. But he publishes something called the Income Report every month, where he itemizes exactly how much he's making and where what source that money's coming from it'd be interesting to see one of the gravel privateers saying okay i'm making 10k a month and here's where it's coming from and if you're an aspiring gravel rider coming in and looking at that going okay it is possible to make six figures from riding your gravel bike now you can sort of weigh up the pros and cons a little bit easier but money politics religion it's one of those things people don't like to wear that
1: badge too publicly yeah no for sure i mean i still think that that's it. that's even a murky business in um, professional road cycling, isn't it? Like, do you know how seldom are things directly published? You know, the UCI isn't you know stamping all over the event flyer how much money the prize pot is. It's there, you can find it. It has to be kind of available, but yeah, they're not talking about it. Anything you know, you hear a team and you, you know back in. The sort of domination years of of Sky, um, they were touted as having a thirty two million pounds a year budget. I don't think Sky ever really published that. There were bits and bobs that kind of contributed to it. So yeah, I think it's like like money in sports always being pretty murky. And uh, yeah, like you say, I'd love to know how much how much you make. I mean, you literally are you just getting a bike and a, and a plane ticket and a meal? and a race entry or it's hard to pay the electric bill with that isn't it it is it is but then do you need an electric bill if you're living out of a van that your sponsor's giving (laughs) you so that's i don't know like and i guess and it's also hard to know because you and you know you and i have interviewed people on our podcasts and on this podcast and we see them in their homes a lot of the time and i'd say their homes these are a lot of the pro bike racers they look like they've got nice homes but when we're talking to someone who's doing gravel so far, they've been, once upon a time, world well to pros. So of course they made some money. So it's difficult to even kind of like a judge like, are they doing well now or are they literally resting on the laurels of a life spent ten years to the good racing for a, a pro outfit? And will that money dry up? Will they end up having to move into a punditry or owning a bike shop or anything else that normal ex-cyclists end up doing podcasters po- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a graveyard for gravel it's podcast <laughs> <laughs> well yeah they, that, that's that's you know you take that domain name now the gravel com. <laughs>
0: Because we do have this regrettable culture in at some tiers of cycling. I don't think it's quite got there at World Tour, but it was very prominent in Italian teams at Pro Conti level, where I can't remember exactly what the minimum wage is for Pro Conti. Let's arbitrarily say it's 38 grand a year. That a rider was being paid 38,000 a year by their Italian team, but then there was a compulsory Coaching fee of 38,000 per year that they had to pay back to the team. So it was literally an accounting, you know, rope it up. The money would go into one account and come back out the other. So on paper, these guys were pro cyclists and they're telling friends they're pro cyclists and to the general public they look like pro cyclists. But like you cannot call yourself a pro cyclist if you can't even buy a coffee without calling for a lend of money from
1: someone. I mean, that's 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 absolutely mad because that's akin to what they call, used to call, well, I still call it sharecropping, which is basically you get people working your land. And you say, right, you can have if as much corn as you can grow and you can sell at market, you can keep it, you just have to rent the land back off me. And you, and the land never yields enough corn to be able to make let you make any money. So you're always effectively either break even or, or be it becoming slowly indebted to the person who is renting you the farm, which is growing your corn, which is totally illegal. You basically just get someone backed into a corner where, where they can't escape because they've amassed debt and they end up just working for you. Because ultimately, that corn is getting sold and that money is going back to the person that owns the farm. And it's the same. That is it's so illegal. That's absolutely insane that that could happen.
0: So I feel like that's why people tune into this podcast. That's aerodynamic. You can bring these agricultural pyramids game <laughs> stories <laughs> into the podcast that I just haven't got <laughs> access to.
1: Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm sure, that's, <laughs> I'm sure that's exactly why people tune in. But um, no, so people tune in for little uh, incredible tidbits like this because you reminded me of meeting... Um, You know Craig Calfee?
0: I don't know Craig Calfee now.
1: So Calfee bikes. Calfee made Greg LeMond's carbon fiber Tour de France bike in 1991, I think. So it was the first full carbon fiber bike to be raced at the Tour de France. It didn't win. I don't think. Did the one win in 91? Maybe it did. We might have to scratch that little last detail out. Or we can just leave it in because not even... I don't, you know, bike journalists don't know, don't know shit without Google in front of just them. Just say he did win. There you go, Lamont. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, point being, Calfi made this bike. Calfi was this little um, Californian upstart working in carbon fiber. Greg Lamont was like, hey, this stuff seems pretty cool. Let's make a bike out of it. So they did that. Anyway, fast forward multiple years, people were like, wow, Calfi bike, That's that's great. We want to have... Calfi bikes on our team so he goes to patrick lefebvre patrick lefebvre says uh yeah we'd like however many race bikes you need to supply in a year Calfi goes okay cool and then patrick lefebvre goes and next year we'd like another 200 and Calfi's like well why man and he's like well because the guys are going to have to sell them at the end of the year to be able to make any money we're going to need another 200 bikes and Calfi's like dude dude my, my bikes will last three four five six years <laughs> just repaint them and it's this disconnect and i just remember that story sticking my head being like Wow, imagine that. Like, you look at the people on TV, imagine if Ronaldo had to sell his boots at the end of the season just to be able to sharp next week in a car to be able to get to the training ground. It's just insane.
0: We are still in a weird place in cycling where it's largely dominated. I think that's why the Tour of Femme kicking off this week has been super important for cycling as a, a milestone because it's, it's run by middle-aged white dudes in Belgium. And... It's old school, like Patrick Lefebvre, the debate around Cavendish, should he bring him to the tour, or should he not bring him to the tour? You would think the sponsors would put a little bit of pressure on Patrick Lefebvre to bring Cavendish, the all-time leader of, or joint all-time stage winner with Eddie Merckx. But the reality was, not only were all the sponsors for Quick Step Belgium, they're all from Patrick Lefebvre's hometown. He doesn't care whatsoever. <laughs> none of the sponsors gave him any pressure. They're drinking buddies. They're golf buddies. They're all school friends. They're tied in on five, six-year deals. They do not care about Mark Cavendish winning stages.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, that is right. So I'm not sure what we've achieved here other than to really highlight the, the very murky side <laughs> of cycling. and But also, you know, just to highlight just how lovely gravel is at the moment. Because as far as we know, none of this stuff is happening. And there's no Patrick Lefebvre who is... Do you say you say Lefevre Is that am I, have I been saying it wrong all this time? I probably have. Possibly bolt for saying it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> there's no there's no snowy haired puppet master behind the scenes. Although Patrick, if you're listening to this, I mean that with the greatest respect because uh, I've always seen him as a bit of a kind of Alex Ferguson sort of bloke. Um, there's, there's another podcast on what we think of Patrick Lefebvre and <laughs> what yeah, other people do. <laughs>
0: yeah, he's an interesting guy. I don't, I don't have that many hard opinions on him, but you're obviously harboring some sort of resentment, but I think we're going to leave that one for another week.
1: <laughs> Maybe <laughs> chop that last little bit. <laughs> that can be a bit that does hit the chopping room floor. So. <laughs> so, folks, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Cyclist
0: Magazine podcast. Pete's that was amazing. And I was, as always, James... You were enlightening, entertaining, and agriculturally significant in this
1: podcast. And if I can only ever be one thing, it's agriculturally significant. Although I did almost see you just say the word, as ever, James, you were passable. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, folks. Anthony, thanks, man.